Nick, right before he did the scene, he said, do you want me to go full cage? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's what, that's what they came here for, <laughs> you know. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In today's episode, a movie star gets more than he bargained for when he befriends a fan in director Tom Gormican's comedic action feature, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. The film stars Nicolas Cage as a fictionalized version of himself, who is hired to attend the birthday of a superfan who is actually a dangerous drug cartel kingpin. But when Cage is recruited by the CIA to help bring him down, he's forced to channel some of his most iconic on-screen characters. In addition to the unbearable weight of massive talent, Mr. Gormican's directorial credits include the feature film That Awkward Moment. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Gormican shares insight into the making of The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent with fellow director Scott Z. Burns. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Hi, everybody. Thank you for uh, coming to watch the film. So, I know a little bit about this, but they probably don't. Um, sure. Why don't, tell us the story about how you got here. Oh, um, yeah, this, I, this was not uh, an obvious, I think, film for, for anyone uh, the whole way along. And, you know, we were, my partner, Kevin Etten, and I had, had decided that uh, we were coming off a, ne- a network television uh, show which which um, we didn't have the greatest experience. I don't know if people maybe understand that. Uh, and we thought we were just going to write something that made us happy. We we're going to write the movie that we wanted to see uh, in in make. And you know, we got a number of people along the way uh, calling different producers, friends, maybe even you. I, although I think you were encouraging. Who said, "Wow, from like a business standpoint, this is one of the dumbest things we've ever seen anyone spend their time on." Because there's one guy who can do it. In fact, when we started circulating it around, we got, uh, I think, one studio called us and we came in and we had this really great meeting and they said, hey, we want to we wanna make this film and we'll give you a, a lot of money and we'll pay Nick. And I was like, this is incredible. It never happens like this. This is really cool. And we were going to make a movie. And we got a call on the way home from his manager who said, Nick Cage is never doing this movie ever, 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 ever. And we were like, oh. Okay, so it was, it was this roller coaster experience. So we decided to write him a letter that sort of explained our intentions to him, uh, maybe a little bit more clearly that it wasn't making fun of him, that it was meant to be a celebration. And I think from our point of view said, hey, look, um, you've done every genre, I think, equally well. If we can pull this film off, you know, you get a chance to do every genre or, not, if, you know, a lot of different genres in the same film. And he thought, if, you know, and then was like, I'm listening. And then we said, it's a chance to play with identity and uh, you're a public person. Take things that are real, take things that are not real and sort of uh, get to play with that on a large scale feature film like Canvas. And we pitched it to him as a bit of performance art. And I think for Nicolas Cage, he said, oh, well, now I'm in, you know, and we were like, okay. So it, it sort of took the right kind of uh, thing. And, you know, 
I think when we had set out, we said if we just got to have lunch with Nick Cage, that would be a funny experience and we could tell our friends about it. And then we got to make the movie. And so, you know, we did, we did ultimately get to have that salad, but also a film. And you, and you didn't even have to, like, tackle him at karaoke. No, 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 he's, he's, well, you know, we made this peak kind of pre-vaccine pandemic. So we actually, you know, it was one of those weird experiences where um, once we started making it, I wasn't actually able to hang out with any of the cast or have those sort of bonding moments that become very important when you're making something. And so that was, you know, uh, one of the many, many, many challenges of this, getting this done. But maybe I'm jumping ahead. Um, No, that's, we can talk about that. I think what what I think is really interesting is a lot of times when people are making a movie, you know, you're told not to mix tones, that that's going to make it really, really hard. Um, and yet you you decided to, you know, make a movie about an actor you didn't really have. Um, and then you got him. And then how did you wrestle the whole sort of tone issue to the ground? Yeah, I, I think it was described to us at the Writers Guild as adapting a book you don't have the rights to, which felt like, right, if the rights were like legendarily crazy, I think, you know, like or the, the book. And so, you know, we had the, we knew that like this project to be, I think, not just like a sketch comedy about somebody had to, had to involve like things from his real life and things that um, we had to talk about, like the financial difficulties and all those things. And uh, he was okay with that. The one problem that Nick had was um, his relationship with his daughter. In the original draft, it was he was much more of an absentee father and was a bit of a narcissist, and like a bit more of a narcissist, I should say. And he really objected to that. Was like, I'm not going to do this, and really forced us to come up with something else, which I think in the end was more interesting. In that um, he presents as sort of a, a guy that's trying to mold his daughter into a little version of him. And it felt like a, a more interesting way to get into like a father daughter relationship. And he found that more palatable. So we, we had to find levels uh, that he was comfortable with, but that led like the first act of the movie to really being like a um, sort of an, a bit more of an indie drama where you're getting into this guy's, you know, or dramedy where you're getting into this guy's head a little bit. And you learn to, I think, care about him and his relationship to his family um, in a way that allows you to take the ride of the ne- the rest of the movie where it starts getting bigger and bigger, you know, very quickly becomes a buddy movie with Javi, then it becomes a thriller. Then, you know, I think you're into an action film and then you're into a family movie. And so that, that was the, the whole challenge from the script point of view, but also directorially we, there was a number of things that I, I, I asked them to do. Um, the first thing was asking them to take it seriously across the whole thing, because even when it went in it to its biggest, most broad moments, uh, you know, if they were taking it seriously, I felt we could, we could have a shot at like having a, a tonal spine throughout the, the, the project. So that was, you know, that, that was the first thing, but you know, it's, it's Nick Cage, right? So, uh, he's very specifically interested in expressionism as an actor in these giant hyperbolic performances. And I'm very specifically interested in naturalism. And so we would get into these arguments about what the best cage was. And I would say to him, I think about you more than you think about you. And, and he would say, that's weird for both of us. And I said, yeah, but I know what the best cage is. And I said, the best cage is like neurotic, serious cage. And he would say, 
very neurotically, like, I, I, you know, I, 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 I'm not even neurotic. I'm, I'm, I'm a very Zen guy. And I'd say, no, this is the cage I like. And so we'd have to decide on a cage, first of all. And when we came to the right cage, like the right cage, like then, you know, having the younger version of him also allowed him to play like a much more like, like the, the bigger, more expressionist performance. He had something to channel it into. So we had to find like those levels and then, um, let him at times when you have things like that, 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 for example, the wall scene where it plays out, like, you know, it's kind of like a, I asked him to play it like a war film and he's like, I, I'm going to miss you. I, you know, and he drops him and Nick right before he did the scene, he said, do you want me to go full cage? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's what, that's what they came here for, <laughs> you know, and he would go, oh, okay, I think I know what to do here. So it's like, there's times where, you know, you would, I don't know. The whole thing was weird, but it was, it was very, it was a strange process, but you know, it was managing both performance, but story-wise, how, how much could it, could it bear? Um, and how, how many Toms were you allowed to bring? <laughs> yeah, it was, I mean, I had to, there were lots of uh, sort of very humbling <laughs> moments in that regard, but it also, it, it, tonally, it, it made you, I think more so than anything else I've been involved with making, um, on any level, the tools that were at your disposal become equally uh, or maybe even more important. Um, Music was a huge one in this. And we found that, you know, in a lot of projects you make, you're like, okay, I kind of know what the the score is and it's dramatic or it's, you know, or it feels like this. And because the project is constantly changing, um, the score goes from very minimal piano based with like some upright bass. And at the end, it's like a, it's a hundred piece orchestra and those are often not the same composer. Um, and so we had to find ways to actually transition the scenes musically. And then the filmmaking would follow, which is not ordinarily what's done. And the, it, it, it helped, but it was an incredibly hard uh, score to get right. And, and that helped us transition a little bit and manage the tone somewhat across the different genres. It would seem almost like the scenes... <clears throat> where there were two Nicks are both the most fun, but potentially also the most challenging. You want to talk at all about how you approach those? Yeah, those, those actually, um, it was very like movie cage and that he was like, okay, so now it's just me and me. Right. <laughs> and like he got very excited about that. He's very, um, got amped up to act with himself. Uh, yeah, the, the approach to those was like, well, I was doubling, which I, I, for me, that was a difficult thing cause I'd never done it before. And I, so I had to figure out how to do that. Um, which is just sort of, I, I'm sure a lot of you have done this before. Um, but it was a combination of like motion control and then, uh, cameras and, you know, running different passes with Nick. And then, um, the way I approached it was shot one side of each of those scenes, then shaved his beard. And then about a week and a half later, I came back and I shot the other side. Uh, and there would either be like a tennis ball or a double, depending on the type of shot that Nick would act to with his own performance in an earwig in his ear. And, um, and then we de-aged, which I used a company called COSA, which um, had developed this algorithm for the arrows in the Revenant as they would go into the water, into the stream, and there were hundreds of them, and so they had to track the water. And they used this same uh, bit of technology and put it on people's face to do digital makeup. Now, 
Um, so I didn't actually have to shoot it with tracking dots. I just had to build a 3D model of Nick's head so that I can make the cheeks thinner and, you know, the eyelids droop less, the things that make one look older, ears, things like that. We could reshape them. And then the algorithm would, would smooth it out. And then that's where this sort of artistry came, comes in, which was interesting to me, where it's a where it's um it's actually kind of old school just artists that they have on hand. And then my makeup artist, uh, Bill Corso, who's kind of a legend in the industry, who also did the prosthetics for Nick as Sergio, uh, the Italian clown. And he came in and basically, you know, they'd go frame by frame or keyframe and basically um shape it to look more like Nick. And, I, you know, there's like an instance where we were all looking at it going, what's missing? And we were missing a beard shadow, which he always had when he was younger. And so they went back in and put the beard shadow in overneath uh, or over the, uh, the skin tone. So it was, it was just a process of like continuing to look at each of the frames. And then depending on how much money you have is how good you can make it look. Okay. So, you know, we didn't have Marvel's budget, but so I picked certain, shots that were close-ups that like i said let's spend our money on all of those and spend as much as we can on the first time you see them in the car together um uh so that you you end up buying it i think in a in, in a way but i will say that's also sort of surreal in this film so we we did allow ourselves some some leeway where if i couldn't get it to look absolutely perfect we said no yeah but you got the guy to kiss himself that, 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 by the way, that, that's, that Nick Cage came in that day, and um, as he always did, he would ride the elliptical from 3 to 4.30 every morning and read the script again. So he's unbelievably prepared. Um, I always sort of imagined what he would be wearing on the elliptical, but I never, he never told me, and I never figured it out. Just sort of wonder what the outfit was. But anyways, he would read it again, and he would come. He would send me a ton of text messages in the morning and then he would come to set and want to talk about them. And after he would drink like four Red Bulls and get this, he loved Red Bull. And he would come and he'd be jacked up and he would be like, I've got an idea for you, you know, and be like, oh, shit, what is it? You know, and, and, that, and that day he said, like, come, come here. And he'd always be really excited. You know, that's the cool thing about Nick is that he's a hundred and I don't know, 20 movies in. And he, uh, he's really excited about acting every day. He's coming with an idea and they're kind of wild Cajun things where the, as scripted, it said, Nikki picks up Nick and kisses him on the cheek. And he said, well, I think that uh, Nikki should deeply French kiss Nick. <laughs> and we thought, <laughs> well, that's obvious. So I'm like, I'll figure out how to shoot it and he should do it. And, and we actually gave him the note to put his hand up on the back uh, and just go in. And he was like, I'm not doing that. Now it feels exploitative. Let me see it. And he ran over to the monitor and he goes, let me see this. And he looked at it and he goes, well, that's really good, actually. I like that. <laughs> and so he would get more and more into it. But it was a tough, you know, it was a tough project to manage because there were always bits of like real Nick and fake Nick. And for me, the most interesting parts are where those two things yeah. crossed over. Um, there's a scene where he's sitting down at the piano uh, and he's drinking and he's about to take over his daughter's birthday party, which is, you know, a pretty despicable thing to do. And I, I have like a four and a half uh, minute version of that scene where he's just, I, it turns out I have an enormous tolerance for pieces of shit that most of the world does not have. They were like, cut this off after like 10 seconds. This is horrifying. And I was perfectly happy to see Nick, uh, you know, he's saying, you know, as you don't want to be an artist, especially how real talent goes unappreciated in this old town. And he's going, shit, shit. 
and he had all these Hungarian teenagers chanting shit and like he's gleefully playing away and I was like this is well this is gold <laughs> and no one but me wanted to see that so there were constantly I, like, I think you're wrong about that yeah I don't know I have it maybe we'll put it out there it was very it was it was funny but it was truly a point where we ended up losing the audience so this was one of the times where screening a movie um for audiences during like a testing period which is usually i think a horrifying uh thing ended up being really really helpful because um just finding levels where people sort of disengaged or 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 or, you know the nikki character used to have six scenes for example and we had to as part of the tonal management um it felt like too much for people and this was sort of the perfect amount where you go i got enough of of that guy I could I could have seen a little more of that guy. Well, I'd rather have that than being like I've seen enough of that guy. <laughs> you know, like halfway through the film, I think. So, but yeah, that that was the approach for Nikki, and it was an important thing for us to sort of dramatize the way that um, uh, that's sort of the voice that everyone has in their head where, that's saying, you know, you can't move forward. You're supposed to be this guy, especially in Hollywood. It's like be someone younger, be someone like you know with more bravado, and you know. Uh, and in this story, Nick has to move past this version of himself in order to be a better, you know, father, ex-husband, actor, human. And we felt that it was kind of a fun way to dramatize that. And so talk about the process that led you to Pedro. Oh, Pedro. Pedro, oh, perhaps, in my opinion, like the biggest win of this film was um, getting Pedro to play the, the guy that hires Nick to come to his birthday party, which was like really, oh, yeah, yeah well, let's give, let's give Pedro a hand. He deserves it. Um, he never, I mean, he, he's a guy that we know, or I knew anyways, from playing, you know, in Game of Thrones or in Narcos. And he presents, it's really like macho guy who's just kind of a badass. And we, we uh, he called us and asked to have lunch. And we said, sure, I think he's a great actor. And we went there and, he said, he showed up and he said, I don't care if I even get this role. I, well, I do, but I, I, I don't care. Like, I just want to talk to you about Nick Cage. I'm such a huge fan. And we were like, this is Javi. This is the guy, you know? And he was like, he, he, in real life, Pedro Pascal is this really sweet kind of guy who's self-deprecating. And he's like, and he's like I, I, I wouldn't even know what to do if I was acting next to him. And we were like, hold on. I love, I, I sort of thought, um, you know, if we could approach this, and this is the way it ended up being, if we could approach this like a love story, but the only one who doesn't know that they're in it is Nick, who's doing his like Bronson, who's like, I don't need anybody. And Pedro is playing this very sweet character. It ended up being this like great for us juxtaposition. And it, it ended up, it ended up working, but it was the most nerve wracking decision that, that we made because I, I didn't, I didn't know if he was funny. Um, I didn't know if he could deliver a joke. I didn't know really if he had kind of like the, the comic timing. I just thought, well, he's a great actor. And so the moments where he's supposed to turn and you're asked to believe maybe implausibly that he's a, that he's a dangerous person. I thought if we could at least sell those, we could try to work with the other side of it. Cause it's kind of a tall order for an actor, but it, uh, you know, I, 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 at this point I can't think of like a better, guy to be across from him and he he's there's a sweetness to him that i think comes through and there's an we were making as i said sort of peak pre-vaccine pandemic and it was a really kind of dark weird time and we just thought if this movie can have an underlying thread of positivity um that's the one thing from the writing side and directorially we were going to try to tease out and just make something that seemed like joyous and fun uh, um 
and Pedro's kind of the perfect guy to do that. And, you know, if you, if you shoot him with a slightly wider lens, he, he does look like a Muppet too. So that's, that's <laughs> like a, <laughs> and, uh, I think that's sort of a fun, fun thing. Um, how long did it take for you to, I mean, did they develop that chemistry? Did you just go with the fact seeing how he's just meeting him in the script that it could go that way? How, how did you, especially because Nick is so specific in terms of his process, how did you? Well, I knew what Nick was going to do because we had had him and he had been reading the script and we'd been working on it to, to refine certain things. So I kind of knew the character that he was going to play and I knew that he was channeling that guy. You know, he was very serious. And um, yeah, getting, getting hmm, what's the best answer to this question? Yeah, I mean, getting Pedro to actually, we had an argument at first about whether he was going to play um, this type of character uh, and he wanted to play the more kind of hard-ass guy. So once we got through that, um, I just put them together on set and watched them. They're both like pretty massive cinephiles and Nick was really into like J-horror at the moment. So he's giving all these recommendations to Pedro and Pedro, forget what he was into, but he was giving Nick recommendations and we couldn't hang out with each other afterwards. We weren't allowed to. So they would just go home and watch each other's movies. And I started to see the bond develop, which is a thing that, you know, happens in the film where they're talking about their favorite films. And then, you know, uh, and, and I think they really, that they bonded in, a, in in much the same way that the characters bond here. And I tried to, we shot in Croatia first, which was the Majorca parts, which are on the ocean. And that was all the stuff in the house where he's like, you know, what's your third favorite movie? And, you know, Paddington 2. And all, all that stuff was shot right away. So they were in that moment where they were just becoming uh, friends. So we did that sort of intentionally. And fa- they f- sort of found their rhythm as the movie was finding its rhythm and as the characters, script-wise, were finding, uh, you know, their relationship together. So that was kind of by design, but it, but it worked out. Um, pretty well, I think. Let's talk a little bit. You know, a lot of people managed to not work very much during um, the pandemic. Um, but I think for those of us who did go out and and work on productions, there were a whole host of challenges. And I think, especially in this kind of a situation where you're going to another country. And, you know, can you talk a little bit about how you sort of kept your head together as the director and writer when, you know, you're in lockdown? Yeah, that, that was, a that was a tricky one. I, I met, you know, a lot of people weren't working at the time, but I managed to do a lot of not working prior to the pandemic. So I sort of got that out of my system and was just ready to go. Um, you know, it was tough. This one was hard. I often said that when we got there, you know, we were like, we had prepped the movie once. So I went through a full prep in Bogota in Colombia. And then on March 5th, I was about two to three weeks away from shooting. We shut down and we came back and I was like, ah, well, this is not going to happen. Um, but then they decided to send us to Europe and there wasn't much COVID at the time uh, in that area in, in Croatia or Budapest where we're based. And so we went and prepped the movie again over there with an entirely new crew, entirely new locations, obviously. And, uh, you know, by the time we started shooting, it was just peak COVID in Europe. So that was, it was like, ah, this is like a filmmaking reality show. So it started to hit our set. I, I directed a week of this movie from a hotel room on an iPad with some like janky technology. I lost my DP for a week. So I had like a, 
Hungarian B camera operator named Marcy uh, as my DP. And we were thinking, okay, some days I would show up and they would be like, you don't have a grip team. So you can put the camera on sandbags or you can operate it. And I was like, I don't, well, that's, it's gonna be tough since I don't know how uh, I'm, I, that would be bad for, for everybody involved. And at the time it was sort of this weird studio experience where um, it was like everybody had a lot going on back here. And I think they sort of forgot that we were making the film. So we were just out there shooting and in one way that was nice. Um, but in another way it was like, ah, everything that could possibly go wrong was going wrong. Um, but it had two effects on us. One was that the crew and the cast kind of pulled together and we really felt like we were just doing this thing on our own. And it felt like, at least to me, that everyone cared a little bit more um, and uh, was working like, you know, when I was in a hotel room on the iPad, I could, I called Nick into the little thing and said, I just need your help like blocking this scene. I'm going to do the best I can to direct. And he would say, I, I got it. I got it. I got it. I think I know exactly. And I explained to him what I want. And he said, let me just go there and explain it to him and we can refine it as we go. And so everybody was sort of, um, you know, uh, chipping in in that way. And I, I will say it's also my second movie. I didn't, I, I don't know, like a, I don't have a tremendous background in like what it's like not to make a movie like this. I made a super small one and then, and then, and then this, so it just felt like more things to manage. Uh, and and I, I think for me, the, the the only thing I could do was was really, really, really lean on. And it was a decision decision I made to not pretend that I knew how to do everything. Um, and I really leaned on my departments and all the people. And I would sit with the camera operators and go, "What would you do here? How would you do this thing?" And with the DP, would come over. We talk about frame. We talk about all these things. And I would just sort of gather everyone's ex- expertise. And I approached making stuff like a student where I just keep learning and learning and learning. And I had a, ended up pulling together quite a good crew, mostly because they were available because every other show went down. So I had a lot of great people around me that I could help kind of lean on to manage uh, a, a, a production, which felt at times, um, you know, a bit out of control. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about that because obviously if you're, you know, directing from your hotel room on an iPad mm-hmm. and dealing, you know, with, with different crew people playing different positions every day, mm-hmm. um, being able to keep that from Nick or at least to keep him calm and focused had to be, was, is that sort of the hardest part of this experience or... Yeah, I, I think, um, although he, you know, people often think and, and ask questions, was, was that crazy to work with Nick? Like, I think they have this idea that he's like some of the other, like, action stars of the day. Right? But he was so incredibly focused. The guy was never late to set once. He would stay late. He would be there even when I didn't need him or at times want him because he would be sitting behind me watching and I'm just asking, he would come over and be like, what did you say about Pedro's shoes? You don't like them? And I'm like, I wear, I didn't even know you were here. Like, I'm just, it's not, what are you doing? But he was there and he was like, he's also a producer of the movie, but he would, you know, and sometimes just be hanging out and be like, oh, come by and look at your shots and go, well, that's really interesting. And it was just, he, he made it, he understood that we needed like the support. And so I think he was, he was, um, he was really, really easy to work with. The hardest parts were just getting him to do and say the things we needed uh, for, for the arc of the character to start as like a real kind of narcissist and an arc to someone who's sort of selfless. Um, you know, I remember a friend of mine, a director telling me, just tell the actor that their arc is from good to great. <laughs> like it's never, 
and Nick, you know, I think inherently understand that it has to be, uh, he had to be at a pretty low place for it to work, but he was, I don't know, people, he was willing to work with us. So that ended up being okay. And how does he feel about the movie? He's so happy. We've been talking all the time. I think it was, you know, that was always the biggest anxiety. And I felt like for me, I'm not, you know, he's worked with so many directors that I admire. I think we all admire. And from, you know, the Coen brothers and Scorsese and Spike Jones and all those films that like people we could point to that, that, uh, that we love. And I, you know, I didn't have that track record to go, trust me, this is going to, I'm going to make this work. It was like, I don't know why you should trust me, but I feel like maybe this is going to be, this is going to work out. Okay. And, and, and he said, I make a choice when I do a project, uh, uh, to trust the director. And he never made me feel like I was any less of a, of a, of a, of a director than, than, than those guys. He chooses to buy in. So that was sort of a nice, uh, you know, a nice thing that he did. And, I think all the way through, he was thinking, how is this going to turn out? But when he saw the performance that we cut together, um, because I do have like quite a bit bigger, more expressionist versions of Nick, and I would get a little bit of a variety. He would like to do his thing, and then he would say, but after I do my thing, I will always give you, I know it's my job as the actor to give you what you want, even though it's not as good or whatever whatever (laughs) he would say. And then he would do it. And so we had that and I was able to cut it together. And he, we had an hour and a half long conversation after he saw it and he was kind of almost in tears that I, I think it was like relief that I didn't, that it wasn't terrible unless you thought it was terrible and then, but he doesn't. So that's good. So he was really, he was really pleased um, uh, with, with the way that he came together. Sounded almost like a question. Oh yeah. Should we um, take some questions? Um, I don't know that we have time, but we'll take one question. Okay. Unless there's none, in which case we won't. Oh, oh, oh. go ahead. The question is, how did you decide which things to reference in Nick Cage's kind of career? Because there's such, I mean, there's, a, there's you know, a, a thousand choices. And I think for us, the sort of metric was, can it work on a couple levels? And I'll give you an example. There's a scene where um, Javi is giving a speech at his birthday party about the only way he can connect to his father is through uh, guarding Tess. And he gives that whole speech. And it's meant to sort of highlight the idea that Nick has just betrayed his friend. And he starts giving a speech about guarding Tess, and he's saying, um, you know, Doug Chesnick from guarding Tess was a complicated guy. He had competing allegiances. And we thought if we could make the reference that we're talking about also be about our story, where a guy, do- he does have competing allegiances, one to his friend Javi and one to the, the, the uh, CIA characters. And we thought, okay, well, that at least works story-wise. So that was one reference uh, where that worked. And then, you know, I don't know if you guys caught this, but um, the shot where he walks into the pool and then is at the bottom is from leaving Las Vegas. And I thought, okay, well, that's peak Nicolas Cage's career. That's his Oscar-winning performance, but it's the lowest point for Nick's character in in, in my film. Um, and I thought if I could put him at the bottom of the pool, but instead of Elizabeth Shue diving in to kiss him, it's Pedro Pascal diving in to like literally lift the character off the bottom. It would It would be more than just a reference to his previous work and then at times you know some of the verbal ones were just because we thought they were funny jokes um yeah should we take all right this will be the absolute last one okay (laughs) the Um, question is what's the toughest thing about directing this that surprised you the hardest thing for me about 
you know, directing this film was really um, trying to make you emotionally attach uh, 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 to the character from from a from a story point of view, from a storytelling point of view. Trying to tr- trying to manage the tones, like we talked about, trying to have something that that felt like it could at once be, you know, a guy who doses himself and is on the ledge, and then the very next scene, you're trying to pull someone back into a dramatic. Uh, performance where, where, where you're inside Nick's head. And so it kind of goes from objective to subjective. And for me, that was the, that was really the, the hardest thing to manage. Um, that, that felt um, technically difficult. Well, you did an amazing job. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I, I appreciate you watching the film. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 